It's time for another episode of March Mad Men, the show with the utterly insane master plan to consider the entire genre of horror in filmmaking and ever so carefully adjudicate which movie is best in every subcategory, eventually landing on the greatest of all time. Set up like the NCAA tournament, each season pairs films two by two until one is crowned as the ultimate representation of its kind. Right now, we're still in the first round of our season devoted to the slasher film, so the action is fast and furious. No loving autopsies here, just rapid mutilations of movies in a process so cold-blooded it would make their narrative's killers proud. As always, I am John Evans, and I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, screenwriter Vic Wheat, and TV and film producer Rich Eckersley. Gentlemen, we have an interesting slate of films tonight. I hope you're ready for it. Vic, what's going on, man? Are you, uh, are you up for this challenge tonight? I mean, John, I'm always up for the challenge. I am, I am still trapped in Texas with my family uh, in, a, in a remote location. So I feel myself morphing into a slasher, and I'm just going to go with it. I feel like this is, this is all coming together, and uh, yeah, so uh, uh, this, this, this all feels like just fate, just everything just coming together. Everything's fine, John. I'm great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Before you put on a mask and go out and do bad things, could we finish at least this episode and hopefully the entire season? Because uh, it doesn't usually end well for the slasher killers, at, at least, you know, one movie at a time. Rich, tell us about your homicidal impulses or hopefully the lack thereof. No, I'm, I'm, I'm working on my ability to, uh, to function as a, as a killer. I'm up and feeling fresh. I, uh, you know, just got done uh, doing a workout, so my blood's really moving. Uh, lots of cardio. That's what I would be saying. Yeah, lots of cardio. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or at least that's what I'd be saying if it were, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and I didn't have a, a job to go to. But instead, no, we're, we're actually recording this thing in the dead of night. You know, I've already I've already got two beers ahead of me prior to this uh, podcast, so I'd say I'm well well prepared in a very different way to talk about these films. It is quite late at night, even here on the West Coast. So yeah, Vic will be downright loopy in the next few minutes, but we embrace that here at March Mad Men. So uh, let's just get right into it. We have a number one seed up against a number sixteen seed. Out of the gate in the old school category or regional or whatever you want to call it. These are the seminal films. Uh, They didn't necessarily produce franchises. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But they're defined by the fact that they're not new or postmodern or deconstructing the genre, the subgenre of slasher movies. They're relatively old fashioned and traditional in, in some key ways, even if, of course, like most good horror movies, they are weird and distinctive in their own manner. Let's talk about Psycho. Vic, tell us about our number one seed in the old school category, Psycho. You got it, John. So Psycho uh, came out in 1960. It was directed by some guy named Alfred Hitchcock. Does that mean anything to you guys? Um, it uh, wait, did, a, didn't he do a lot of music videos? 
I think so. Him and, mm-hmm. and David Fincher were sort of contemporaries. I that's think. right. That's right. Um, had a box office of $50 million, which was Hitch's highest grossing film. Logline, and I want you to know I crafted this very carefully. The logline is this. Perfectly normal hotel owner Norman Bates has dinner with his latest guest, a philandering fugitive named Marion Crane, who's just stolen $40,000 from her boss. His sweet, kindly manner convinces her to change her ways and return the money. It's actually hard to say more than that without spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, now, wait, Vic. I mean, wait, Vic. There is a moratorium on spoilers for 75 years after a movie comes out. This has only been 60. But seriously, like if you were, if you were trying to t- tell someone about this movie that's never seen it, like. How could you tell them anything more? I mean, this is why Hitch and the the producers, they had all these very strict things that people couldn't come into the theater after a certain point. Uh, I mean, the the marketing, it sounds like, was as innovative as the film itself. But so much of that was tied into the construction of the film, which I'm not going to get into. John, stop trying to goad me into it, okay? Well, technically, uh, round one of our tournament is non-spoiler, so I guess we have to respect that. You're goddamn right you do. Now I don't have to respect you, Vic, but I have to respect that. <laughs> I mean, I'd say there's a version like the, the, if really if you really want to go spoiler free on this movie, there's a version of the synopsis that doesn't even bring Norman Bates into the picture. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, so look, that goes into my my sort of notes on the movie, which is that the first act of this movie seems to be from a different film entirely. Although it's still steeped in Hitchcock's trademark suspense. Uh, Rich, I want you to note that when Marion Crane has fled with the $40,000, she falls asleep on the side of the highway and a cop comes over and wakes her up. And then she gets back in her car and pulls away and very soon comes across a sign that says Los Angeles to the left, Bakersfield to the right. She fell asleep in Santa Clarita, Rich. She was very near where you are right this minute. I'm just saying, I would. I, I get very excited when I sort of put that together. Um, so, uh, yeah, so this is a very different movie through its first act. It's a, a, a woman, she's involved with a man, he's got an ex-wife who's taking all of his money, and, and so she has this opportunity to steal $40,000 in cash. I don't know what that translates to today, but in 1960, it must have been a ton of money. She takes it. She runs off. She's being followed by the cops. And then the movie takes this sharp right turn into horror. And it becomes an entirely different kind of film. Watching it for the first time in years, I was impressed with how entertaining and suspenseful this movie still is. If I had any questions about it, I came away firmly convinced this movie belongs in the competition. It's box office success makes this the movie that launched a thousand slashers. And there are dozens of elements that we've already seen repeated with less success in movies like Friday the 13th and especially Tourist Trap. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but watching this, I kept thinking, oh, this is like Tourist Trap. Oh, this is like Tourist Trap. Yep. I don't want to spend too much time getting into it, not least because there's a lot of spoilers in this movie. But if you haven't seen it, stop what you're doing. Go see it. But also, I think this movie's going to merit a lot of discussion down the road. It's the number one seed. We're going to talk about this. I'm not going to get too far into it. But I will say, for me, 
watching it again this time, the standout scene is not the violence. It's not any of the iconic scenes. It's the dinner scene between Norman and Marion uh, that I referenced in the long line. Anthony Perkins, like I can't stress this enough. Anthony Perkins crushes this movie. Like there's a reason this movie is so iconic. Half of it is Hitchcock. Half of it is Anthony Perkins. His every line in this scene is so layered. His smiles and his stutters, they're so balanced with these near eruptions of anger. But you never think, why doesn't this lady just run? Because he seems so harmless. But at the same time, he's dropping these iconic lines like, well, a boy's best friend is his mother. And we all go a little mad sometimes. I mean, I was afraid going into this viewing that this was going to be like The Haunting, where it's an old movie that cineasts rave about, but doesn't really have the goods to satisfy actual horror fans. This ain't that. It's a heavy hitter, and it deserves its number one seat. Wow, your enthusiasm is contagious, Vic. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped as well about this movie. Rich, tell us about Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast, the opposition for Psycho. <laughs> Blood Feast premiered three years later. Um, it was Saturday, July 6th, 1963, at the Bel Air Drive In in Peoria, Peoria Illinois. Um, the movie was composed, shot, and directed um, by Herschel Gordon Lewis, whose name is maybe even more famous than, than this film itself. In a nod to Vic, I'll say that the logline of this film is a woman throws an Egyptian-themed dinner party. It just so happens that the Egyptian-themed dinner party surrounds the events of young, several young female victims of caterer and serial killer Fuad Ramses as he harvests their organs for a ritual designed to appease Egyptian goddess Ishtar. Um, I hope that wasn't a spoiler for, for anyone. This is a this movie's an interesting watch. You know, for one, like it's worth noting that this movie had a twenty four thousand dollar budget. Uh, it's funny because you watch Psycho and like, uh, well, I'm not going to dispute any of the the accolades that you're that you're showering upon it, Vic. I watch Psycho and you tell me it's that movie's from 1960, and I nod my head and I say yes. You show me Blood Feast and you tell me it's from 1963, and I'm like, really? Like, I actually find that legitimately surprising just because of the nature of what Blood Feast is. And it's a movie that has a lot of legend around it. From its 24000 budget, it recouped anywhere between seven and $300 million, depending on who you ask. And it's noted that while a lot of films before it were really exploiting violence, Blood Feast is considered to be the first time that a horror film expressly was designed to attract viewers with the lure of ghastly, gory images. This movie at the time was called a splatter film, and it's known as to be the inspiration to Tom Savini, Stuart Gordon, John Carpenter, John Waters, and even Diablo Cody. I'd say that uh, Lewis, who was like sort of this like William Castle-esque road showman, was less publicly inspired by the filmmaking uh, he was known to speak frequently about the fact that filmmaking was essentially a business and nothing more. And people who were trying to make art were operating on an, in an immature philosophy. This is a movie that my mother thought was amusing to expose me to personally at a very young age. 
And so I ended up seeing this a lot in my formative years because the campiness of it, I think, you know, uh, like uh, amused my parents. And so I will say that this movie has not aged with me particularly well. I used to find it really entertaining when I was younger. And looking at it now with a critical eye, I feel pretty comfortable in saying that this movie has virtually no redeeming qualities on a cinematic level. The scenarios are nonsensical. The filmmaking craft is shoddy. I mean, there are some scenes where the actors are not even miked. The acting is astoundingly, jaw-droppingly terrible. There is not a decent performance in the entire movie. And the starlet Connie Mason, who's the poster proclaims, you've read about her in Playboy, is remarkably awful. There are points where I would think that she is accidentally reading the on-screen direction if it weren't for the fact that there was none. In fact, the script was really just a 14-page outline that the director had dictated to his secretary, Louise Down, who is the credited screenwriter on this film. And yet, somehow, this movie really satisfies some of that goofy, gonzo, prehistoric horror energy that I have always craved as part of the genre. I actually think that this pairing, like Psycho versus Blood Feast, is my favorite pairing so far. These movies that only have three years difference share something very important in common. I personally would not call Psycho a slasher, nor would I even call Blood Feast a movie, but they certainly intersect at a pivotal point where their essential DNA combined, and you either got something like Halloween with a more dominant Psycho strain, or you got Friday the 13th, which looks more like the Blood Feast side of the family. I'm going to vote Psycho. I'll just tell you that right now. But you look at the first scene of Blood Feast, where a showering, semi-nude, soon-to-be victim inexplicably places a leather-bound book called Ancient Weird Religious Rites on the side of the tub. And to me, that's what this movie is. <laughs> An ancient weird rite. Part of the passage of being a horror fan, like Psycho or Peeping Tom, that ultimately births the genre as we know it today. And it's got to be respected for that. Wow. Yeah, I think you put it into perspective. We we needn't even have a vote on the, on this, but I I do think that I I have a lot of notes on Blood Feast, and I probably won't even get them all in there. But it was a delightful movie to make fun of. But first, I'll say because this is the only thing I'm going to say about Psycho. Of course, I'm voting for it. It's the granddaddy of them all. It may not lay down the exact blueprint of the slasher genre, but it certainly introduces the psycho killer as we know him to the cinematic universe. Norman Bates is not unlike many of the antagonists in our field in films spanning the decades. He's more of a real person than most of them, though. And I think he certainly embodies the angst and unchecked impulses of our white, mostly white male assemblage, but he does so in a more psychologically resonant way than a lot of these dudes in our tournament. What can I say? I, I have a feeling we'll be revisiting Norman and his mother soon enough, so I'll leave it there. A few, precious few comments about <laughs> Blood Feast, which is, I mean, it is a delight, and I, I said this before we, we we recorded, but hopefully anyone who listened to our Amityville show or is familiar with that will get this reference. You do not want to stiff this caterer, folks. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I just think it's so funny. The climax of this movie, Act Three, is a catered event. That's, <laughs> that's where all the drama reaches its pinnacle. I, you know, when you think about like which which killers in these movies could do that, I suppose the Texas Chainsaw Massacre family could cater an event, but generally the killers in these movies lack that kind of polish and presentation. Another one of my favorite things is this detective in this movie. He is detective of the year, folks. I mean, there's a there's a moment where his big eureka, his eureka moment of putting clues together is when he goes, Ishtar, Etar, Ishtar, Etar. <laughs> and he draws the connection between these things. And he forgets that Ramses, the killer that he's just identified, happens to be catering his girlfriend's party that very night <laughs> until he's examining the corpse of her best friend for a few minutes. It's, it's, it's hysterical. Not to mention the coincidence that this 50-year-old detective and his teenage girlfriend have been going to a Cults of Egypt class for weeks or months. <laughs> Well, while an Egyptian cultist is on a murder rampage, I think this cop should be pretty embarrassed. Uh, it, it's just, it's funny how the movie plays it, that things that he should just flat out remember kind of <laughs> ring a bell for this guy eventually. I don't know, man. Maybe he should lay off the sauce or <laughs> do more Sudoku puzzles or something. His mind is not a steel trap. Let's just put it that way. But I will say uh, that the film does fit a lot of the basic formulaic characteristics of the slasher movie as we've come to know them, at least in the terms of uh, the narrative positioning of a series of kills, the slow tightening of the noose on the killer, a central female whom we care more about technically than the others, but who is destined inevitably to be in the killer's crosshairs and so on. So yeah, in some ways, this is a more conventional slasher film than Psycho, but, I mean, there weren't a lot of movies laying down the conventional blueprint. So it, it, it's interesting that it has that DNA. But yeah, generally speaking, this movie is not any kind of serious candidate for greatest slasher movie ever. It's more of a mystery science theater kind of film uh, all the way. Uh, and the last thing I'll say uh, at this point is that when this movie came out, my mother was 22 years old. And there's a pool scene with three women, the lead who's blonde and uh, two brunette women. And it struck a chord with me because I know via pictures that my mom had a very similar hairstyle and look and makeup style and everything to the brunette women in this scene back in the 1960s. So it was, it was kind of trippy. It was like I was looking at a picture of my mom um, when she was young. So... Uh, I'll leave it there for now. Vic, tell us your immediate thoughts about the classic Blood Feast. <laughs> that was, you guys have both been hitting home runs. Rich, that was, I think, the best intro to any movie yet in this tournament. So I agree. Maybe kudos for that. <clears throat> I'm also going to say that the fact that you were exposed to it by your mother at a young age explained a lot about our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, look, the what I will say about Blood Feast is that 
I get why this movie's in the competition. I get why we have to talk about it. It's meaningful that Herschel Gordon Lewis, and I, I don't know if you guys knew this, but I, I, I did a little research and saw this. Herschel Gordon Lewis saw Psycho and thought, well, that was good, but boy, he sure, he sure shied away from the blood. And that was what prompted him to make uh, Blood Feast, which is to say a movie that's pretty much nothing but blood and guts. If you look at the Wikipedia page for Blood Feast, it actually has a legacy section, right? Like, that's that's a movie that matters in the canon of horror. But to me, it's kind of like this, right? So I know that Robert Klein, the stand-up comedian, uh, and who I actually enjoy, I think he's funny and very thoughtful, he was the first comedian to say fuck on television, on an HBO special. But what if it hadn't been him? What if it had been some talentless hack who somehow landed an HBO special and just got on stage and went, fuck, fuck, fuckity, fuck, fuck, fuck. Thanks, good night. And then every book on the history of comedy has to include this paragraph that says, this suspender-wearing doofus was a talentless hack, but he was the first comedian to say fuck on TV and thus open the door for real artists like Richard Pryor and George Carlin. This section of this podcast is the equivalent of that paragraph. The only thing worth noting about Blood Feast is its historical significance, which has now been noted. I mean, Vic, I don't know that I totally even agree with that um, in the sense of like, I, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't even really feel the need to like comment on Psycho. I'll actually say that like, I, it had been a long time since I saw Psycho and I think I enjoyed this viewing more than I've enjoyed any previous viewing that, that I had. Like, I, I can't wait to, to talk about it more despite the age of the film but i will say that like you know not to bring in a movie that we're not talking about but like we've also talked about like peeping tom which i feel like is like sort of in the same category as psycho although maybe not quite as as strong of a film and i think that when you talk about something like that where you're like well this is important because it's inspiration the the fact that like when i was listing off like tom savini and like Stuart gordon is not to be unnoticed like I think that you look at the ham-fisted effects in this thing, the the goops and gobs of blood, the, the the rotted sheep's tongue that he pulls out of the woman's mouth. You can dismiss this as a bad movie all you want, but I don't think you have, you know, the 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 cyclist being torn in half in Day of the Dead, or most of the effects in any Friday the Thirteenth film, without this movie really kickstarting that type of effect and if you don't have those effects you don't have this genre this genre was kept alive by the splatter side Mm -hmm. of the 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 films that followed it and so like it's not just a historical footnote like it is an inspiration it's planting the seeds and i agree that like unlike psycho it can't stand up like you watch it today and like it's it's pretty fucking awful but like if you are just looking at it from the sake of what it was bringing to the table it's notable, especially for the time. And like, I think that it has merit as long as you're sitting here talking about trying to parse out the greatest slasher film of all time. That's rich. For, I feel like you just, you just repeated everything that I said back to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, I agree. Like it's, that's what's notable about the movie is that the, all the things that came after it by real artists like Romero and, and, uh, 
uh, junk. Well, not so much Carpenter, but you know what I mean? Like that he opened the door to that level of violence in a horror film is what's notable about it. Right. And, and so we we're noting it. That's what we're doing. here. We're noting it. This movie happened. This is the effect that it had. If you were doing like, if you were doing your scorecard on it, you know what I mean? Like, it's like F F F F <laughs> historical significance. B. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that's and that's what I'm saying. Like it's you, you, you have to mention it. We have to talk about it. You have to have this conversation. Your book on the history of horror, like your book on the history of comedy, has to include the guy who went fuckity fuck fuck fuck. Your book on the history of horror has to include the guy who couldn't do anything else right, but was like, you know what? This needs a fucking rotting sheep's tongue in a chick's mouth, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, you did that. Like you, you exploited America's bloodlust for profit. <laughs> but to go from 1960 to 1963 in just three years and completely not just open that door, but, but kick it open and have yeah. some really, really extreme visuals that, you know, they, they, they somewhat hold up. I, when I was watching the gore here, I was struck that, yeah, there's a lot of thick, bright, goopy blood and what do you call it? Viscera, I guess. Organs and tissue and muscles and stuff. But it's not entirely unconvincing. I can say that one nice thing about it. The color of the blood isn't quite right, but I've seen worse. I would say it's probably on par with or even better than the color of the blood in like Dawn of the Dead, for example, which it's a little too day glow. And that movie's gore scenes work fine, obviously. So I, I think that 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 is a striking and you know reasonably shocking even to this day aspect of the film and certainly at that time it must have just been i mean you can't imagine seeing these kinds of body trauma uh, post-mortem or not being depicted on, on screen. And I, I will add, though, that they couldn't afford kills, clearly, so they focused on the gore in Aftermath. It's all post-mortem, or at least post-attack, where you see the, you know, the grisly stuff, because, yeah, there was no Tom Savini here. But that is the defining characteristic of the movie, and I think it it, it was meaningful enough to to allow it to continue because it proved itself. And there's, there's certainly, yeah, historical significance is, is, is there. Let's talk briefly. Cause we're not going to talk about the movie again about the killer. Um, Cause you know, he, he's different from a lot of these guys. I thought his fake dye job was a little distracting as well as his, <laughs> <laughs> he's got this gray hair and he's obviously like 30. Everything's distracting. <laughs> yeah, true. I was just going to say like, everything is distracting in this movie. <laughs> the fact that he's always, he's always slightly off center in the frame. <laughs> oh, there's no framing in this movie at all. No, they just put no the camera like down on the tripod and, yeah, it's hilarious. But yeah, he's supposed to be an elderly man, and he's like in his 30s or something. And he's got bug eyes. I think that points for originality with his motivation. At least it's not yet another mommy dearest scenario. Uh, it's some kind of Egyptian mythology that's driving our killer. It's a little xenophobic. You know, there's kind of a, a distasteful quality to the film's depiction of Egyptian uh, gods and goddesses, but it, it, it's different, right? So, what did what did you guys think, uh, Vic? 
I mean, yeah, xenophobic was a word that that sort of came to my mind. Although I did, I was briefly curious about what like actual Egyptian cuisine might might involve. Sadly, we don't um, find out. <laughs> I mean, he gives look that guy gives the the only, the closest thing to a performance in the in the mm-hmm. movie, uh, mostly with the bug eyes. But it's yeah, I mean, it's I don't know, it's not. It's it's the least awful thing in the in the movie. I want to point out actually just before before this all gets uh, uh, swept away in a quick vote. Um, Herschel Gordon Lewis subsequently spent three years in prison in the seventies for fraud, <laughs> <laughs> and then basically reinvented himself as like a marketing guru and wrote many, many books on how to like market your business and market yourself and everything else. I mean, it was, there's no, like there's no illusion in this guy that like he he was breaking down barriers that he, you know, he, he, he was pushing the genre forward or anything. Like he figured out a thing that would make money, started off making like, softcore nudie pics uh, and then figured out that gore he could get into drive-ins uh, and so then he cashed in as quickly as he could but he was the first one who did it and that matters so here we are Francois Truffaut he was not yeah is there a lamer antagonist defeat in the history of slasher movies than the way this guy goes out we, we shouldn't totally get <laughs> no. into it but it's, it's pretty weak <laughs> Uh, Actually, you know what? What I do want to say about this that I think is significant. This was one of the—I wouldn't even say one of the first because this has happened many times. But fuck COVID, because this movie I needed to watch with you guys. We needed to be drinking beer and watching this movie and laughing at it, and it and it would have improved the experience a thousandfold. Like this is a drive-in movie times ten. Yeah, I think everyone had the reaction that it, like that it was a little agonizing to watch this without other people around, like to just yep. be alone sitting there trying to like enjoy it on its own merits was a a bit of a Herculean feat. I'm glad I had a couple of beers. Uh, last comment about Ramses is he was well spoken, and you don't get that with a lot of slasher killers. So there's there's another aspect of this that's different. All right, any other thoughts, or can we just say that's a that's a clean sweep? Three votes for Psycho. Clean yep. sweep. Okay, on to the next one. Not so fast, there, John boy. We're going to end part one right here. So tune in next time for the last two matchups of this episode. The 2012 Elijah Wood Maniac does battle with Dario Argento's opera. And Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, locks horns with Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. As always, if you enjoy our show, please do rate and review on iTunes or wherever you found us. And if you don't, Please just forget I said that and listen to other things. Adios. My name is Kate. This is Frank. I got a hunch. And if it proves right, I hope you got a strong stomach. Fine.